I love that last verse of come behold the wondrous mystery, don't you? What a wonderful verse. Come behold the wondrous mystery. It is a mystery to us. We know it's true and yet we don't understand all of it. Slain by death, the God of life. Why would he humble himself to be slain by sinners? He who's the God of life. No worries because no grave could e'er restrain him. As the God of life, death had no hold on him, had no grip on him. Praise the Lord, he's alive. Praise the Lord, he's alive. The song goes on, what a foretaste of deliverance. That's right, brothers and sisters, what we have is a foretaste of our future full and final deliverance. We have a foretaste of it now. We are spiritually resurrected now. We will be fully and completely resurrected and reunited with our bodies, glorified then. And so, how unwavering our hope. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. I'm wondering how unwavering your hope is this morning. Because we're going to look at John chapter 20 and we're going to see why our hope should be unwavering. Because we have been given an unwavering hope. And it's pictured in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this. Think about your future the way Paul writes to the Colossians in chapter 3 verses 1 through 4. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, and you have, then do this. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Why? For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you will also appear with him in glory. Fact. Done. Hope. Hope. It's interesting if you just, you know, from a, from a very natural perspective, just think for a moment, what, what should concern us most? I think it's death. What is the one thing we will, we will never escape? You can't escape taxes. You just don't pay them. You'll go to jail for it, but you can escape taxes. You know, death and taxes, can't escape those, but you really cannot escape death. It's coming. It's inevitable. If there's anything in the world, in all of our concept as human beings, what could need reviving more than a corpse? What could matter to us anything any more than that a corpse could be revived, could be resurrected? And if that's the case, what could give us more hope than someone who has died and been resurrected? He would be the one we would look to. He would be the one we would go to, to understand life and hope. Let's turn to John chapter 20 and look at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the very word of God beginning in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, 
They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the other linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. And the disciples went back to their homes. Let me stop there. So it's the first day of the week, and what day would that be? Sunday. I never understood that as a kid. I don't know about you, but it was called the weekend. We went to school all week, Dad worked all week, and the weekend came, and I thought Saturday and Sunday were the weekend. And since Sunday came after Saturday, it was the end of the end of the week. But it's actually the first and the beginning of the week. It's Sunday. You already know that ever since the resurrection of Jesus, his church has gathered and worshipped him on Sunday. The day the Lord rose from the dead is the Lord's day. The disciples of Jesus used to gather for worship on Saturday, the day of rest that looked back to creation under the old covenant. From that point forward, from the resurrection forward, the disciples will gather to worship on Sunday as the day that looks forward to our future rest. And the new creation under the new covenant, it's a day of hope. Every Sunday is a day of hope. And by the way, as we get started, I just want to make a couple of notes. I'm, I'm not going to harmonize John's gospel account with the other gospel accounts of the resurrection. I'm just gonna, we're just going to look at John's account and study it this morning because it's a message of hope. And the second thing, today's not Groundhog Day. You know what Groundhog Day means. It means you wake up and it's the same day over and over again. This time, it's, it's not an annual day. Oh, another Easter Sunday. I know what happens every Easter Sunday. Jesus rises from the dead. It's just the same old, same old. And in this way, even Easter Sunday can become just another Groundhog Day to us. Don't let that happen today. We can always allow some Easter Sundays to bore us rather than enliven us. Don't let that happen this morning. I think one of the reasons that we let that happen is because we've, we've set our expectations to have a super emotional experience. Because it's what the world tells us to do. And, and we mostly do a lot of the things that the world tells us to do. And so we're looking for some super emotional experience when what we've been given in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a supernatural truth and a reality. Jesus is risen from the grave. That certainly was not boring to the real people in the real place at a real time surrounding Jesus' resurrection. People like Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was the woman from whom Jesus cast out seven demons. I can't even imagine to imagine what it would be like demons. No wonder she followed Jesus from that moment on. And in the few days, there in 
Jerusalem, she witnessed Jesus' trial, heard Pilate's pronouncement, saw Jesus beaten and humiliated and spat upon, and was there at the foot of the cross when he breathed his last. And now she's come to the tomb. Now she's come to the tomb. And John wants us to understand that the darkness of the hour matches the darkness of the clouds of Mary's understanding of what's happening around her. Because she's confused. And she's distressed. And the same darkness matches the sorrow that's in her heart. Because the man who saved her from seven demons is gone. I think Mary feels a little hopeless. I don't think that's a stretch. As soon as she saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb, she ran to Peter and John. She ran. She was alarmed and and a little bit out of breath probably when she said to the disciples, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. She talks like we talk, right? The proverbial they when we don't know who to blame. Who took him? They. Where is he? I don't know where they laid him. I like detective shows. And I would like to ask Mary a lot of questions right here. You do too. But what John wants us to know is that it's enough for Peter and John, the other other John, the other disciples John. He's the one who's writing this gospel. It's enough for Peter and John, what they've heard already, to spring into action. I take it that it was Peter's initiative to run to the tomb since he's mentioned first and in prominence, but it was John's youth and vitality that got him there first. John stopped at the entrance and looked inside the tomb. He saw the linen cloths that had been wrapped around Jesus' dead body. St. Joseph of Arimathea and St. Nicodemus had done that the night before when they buried him. So they see the cloths that were patiently and tightly wrapped around the body lying there, but, but no body. Peter caught up, ran past John into the tomb, which is very Peter-like. He just ran right in. He too saw the grave cloths and something else. A glimmer of hope. A glimmer of hope. If somebody has taken Jesus' body, why in the world would they unwrap it? And why would they neatly fold and set the face cloth aside? See, John the disciple who stood in the tomb is also John the writer. And John is inferring that it was Jesus who stood up and took the cloth from his face and neatly folded it and set it aside as he moved away from the grave cloths out of the tomb. Now, I don't know that he caught it at the time, but as the author, writing years later, he does. And he lets us know that. And I don't think this is a wild inference when you read what he writes next in verse 8 anyway. That at that moment, John himself saw and believed. Somehow the evidence pierced through. And John says he saw and believed, which is very interesting. Verses 8 and 9 are are very interesting. Because in verse 8, John writes that he believed. And in verse 9... John writes that none of the disciples understood the scripture, that Jesus must rise from the dead. So what is it? He believed or he didn't understand? Both. Both are true. 
for a moment. Many times in the Gospels, the disciples did not understand the Scriptures. Jesus chastises them for it. Many times in the Gospels, the disciples didn't understand the things Jesus was saying to their faces. And sometimes Jesus even told them, I'm going to say this, but you're not going to understand it. At least not until later. What he meant was, you might not understand this until after my resurrection. And here we have that happening. Here John believes that Jesus died and rose from the dead. That's what he believes. And the faith of the other disciples will follow along as the account unfolds. Faith and believing that rests squarely on Jesus' resurrection. What John says is that he believes that Jesus died and rose while admitting he has no understanding of this from scriptures. John has seen and John's believed and John has hope. Hope that comes from the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look now at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she went, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now the disciples, they went back to where they were staying, but Mary went back to the tomb. And she looked in and she saw two angels. Now Mary did not understand the empty tomb. So she was weeping because Jesus, who had freed her from seven demons, had been executed by the Romans at the request of her own religious leaders. She doesn't understand why. And now his body is missing. She doesn't understand where. And this is never good when a dead body disappears. And these two angels don't appear to be very insightful when they ask, woman, why are you weeping? So she tells them, and then she turns around, and she sees Jesus. Now we see that the angels were actually pretty insightful. Her Lord is not missing, and her Lord is not dead. Why are you weeping is a perfectly valid question. And then they introduce her to him. That's what angels are doing here. The angelic presence is there to quietly introduce the resurrected Jesus Christ. And then Jesus asks the same brilliant question. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? 
but she didn't recognize Jesus. It seems that Jesus' new resurrected body has supernatural properties. She assumed he was the gardener, even a conspirator, the they that she wondered about. Did you notice, sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. And then it's as if she suddenly realizes that the only way to recover Jesus' body would be to join the gardener in his conspiracy. She says, tell me where you've laid him and, and, and I'll take him away. I'll get rid of the body for you. And then Jesus says her name. Mary. Mary. You know, this is one of those places in Scripture when you, where you want to just stop. Maybe you do this in a devotional time in the morning. You just stop. And can you imagine one day the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ simply saying your name to you? Bob. Molly, Calvin, can you imagine anything sounding sweeter? I'm not sure that I can. Mary, suddenly the dark cloud over her understanding is lifted and the weeping stops and Mary was, who was once full of sorrow is now full of hope. It's what happens when we experience Jesus' resurrection. Look at her. She, she recognizes Jesus as alive and standing before her, and she falls at his feet and latches onto him. It's implied in the text because he says, <laughs> Stop clinging to me. It's not time to cling to me. I'm not going anywhere. Not yet. We have time. She falls and clings to him. She doesn't want to let go of the resurrection hope that she's experiencing. Interesting thing is she won't. Jesus is going to go away, but she still won't lose that resurrection hope. This is what hope does. It enlivens us. Mary came to the tomb in darkness to see her dead teacher. That's what she came to see. Mary left the tomb on a mission for her resurrected Lord. who was very much alive. Jesus gave her an assignment, Mary. It's all right. Go and tell the disciples. A mission for you. And she went. And she said, I have seen the Lord. What a mission. Look at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive any the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The disciples didn't have as long a runway, it seems, as Mary did to be confronted by the resurrected Jesus Christ. That same evening, 
The disciples hid behind locked doors for fear that the Jews may come after them, since they were Jesus' disciples. Even with the alarm system activated, that is, the doors locked, Jesus appears in their midst. His resurrected body seems to have supernatural properties. And he says, peace be with you. They're waiting for somebody to break down the doors and drag them off to be crucified. He says, peace be with you from within. Which is quite hopeful, don't you think? It's quite hopeful. They're cowering in fear for their lives. They don't know what's coming after them or how long it'll be. Probably not long. Jesus appears within and he says, peace be with you. It's amazingly hopeful. I think when the resurrected Christ says, peace be with you, that peace will be with you. It's also interesting, only after Jesus had displayed his hands inside, were the disciples glad. <laughs> once, they, once they showed him, he showed them who he was, they were convinced, they were overjoyed. Glad is a little understated. Uh, we're reading the, the English Standard Version. We're getting a very understated English version of glad. They were overjoyed. They were convinced that Jesus was alive and that he was with them and that he's the peace bringer. Like Mary Magdalene, they had seen and they had believed. And rather than give us a detailed account of the meeting, which John does not do here, if you read it that way, you'll be confused. John restates three important themes that have been woven throughout his gospel. John, the author, is taking the opportunity to restate three important themes that have been running throughout his gospel saying, what I, what I told you back here, what you saw in Jesus' life back here, same thing here after the resurrection. In verse 21, Jesus commissions the disciples to proclaim the gospel, doesn't he? That Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. This was, this was Jesus' prayer for his disciples in the garden, back in John chapter 17, in his high priestly prayer. This is what he prayed. But now I am coming to you, he's praying to the Father. And these things I speak in the world that they, his disciples, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you, Father, take them, my disciples, out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. That's the Great Commission. Stated here, a gospel to be proclaimed to the disciples. And then John ties this gospel proclamation to the gift of the Holy Spirit. I don't think that Jesus exhaled the Holy Spirit onto his disciples at that moment to any degree whatsoever. What John is doing in verse 22 is symbolizing the gift of the Holy Spirit is imminent. It's coming. It's going to happen soon. In fact, it will happen in exactly 50 days from now at Pentecost, as it's recorded in Acts chapter 2. And then in verse 23, we have, in logical sequence, the outcome. The disciples, including us. Participate in Jesus' saving mission by declaring that God will forgive all who repent and believe in Jesus, and that God will not forgive any who do not repent and believe. When we read this verse, the determinative phrases are not, if you forgive and if you withhold. Rather, because it's written in the passive voice, the determinative phrases are, are forgiven them, as in, 
by God and is withheld from them, as in by God, which means God is the one who forgives or does not forgive. So Jesus is sending us, his church, his disciples, to proclaim the gospel. He's sending the Holy Spirit to us to empower us to proclaim the gospel, and the Holy Spirit will apply the gospel to God's elect. You see so much hope in the resurrection and so much hope in what comes after the resurrection. Jesus is looking forward to what his church will do in proclaiming the gospel and what his spirit will do in applying the salvation he accomplished to sinners that they might experience the resurrection and live. Pick up in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand out and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Well, Thomas missed the party, so to speak. At least the first party. He was out and about. He was not with the ten disciples when they saw the resurrected Jesus, and so he was a doubter. And is forever labeled Doubting Thomas. Thomas demanded physical proof before he would believe that Jesus, who was dead, is now alive. And in that way, he's like most of us, if not all of us, isn't he? We all wanted some kind of physical proof before coming to saving faith. Even now, when you and I experience doubt, it's usually because we want some assurance that goes beyond faith. We want something that we might call real. Well, the disciples were still inside behind locked doors, but this time Thomas was with them when Jesus stood among them and said, Peace be with you to the group. And it's the perfect I told you so moment. But Jesus offers his body as physical evidence to Thomas. And then Jesus gently appeals to him. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Believe. What a kind and gentle Savior. What a kind and gentle Savior. I said things far worse than Thomas about not believing in God and not believing in Christ and blaspheming his name and his work. And what a gentle Savior comes and sends to a rotten sinner like me. Believe. Believe. And so Thomas explains exclaims, my Lord and my God. There's an exclamation point there. My Lord and my God. 
It's kind of like, boy, oh boy, did he believe. Because the resurrection gives hope. Do you see what's transpired? Even though all the other disciples told Thomas that they believed, he honestly thought he had no hope of seeing and believing that Jesus was alive. When he said that, I think Thomas genuinely believed that he would never believe. But Jesus appeared to Thomas as he did to the other disciples, and Thomas saw and believed with the same awe and the same reverence. Jesus makes an interesting comment to Thomas about seeing and believing. And Jesus is not saying that Thomas's faith is a lesser faith because Thomas saw the resurrected Jesus and the others, and that others somehow don't. The resurrection is, among other things, a sign. And the New Testament was written so that we would know and believe the signs that point to Jesus, the Messiah. We read and hear about the proofs, the signs of who Jesus is and what he's done, including the sign of the resurrection. No, the contrast is really a hopeful one. The contrast is not about people's faith. It is that there is a first generation of believing disciples who saw Jesus, and there will be another generation and many subsequent generations of believing disciples who will not have seen Jesus, and yet they believe. Because believing comes by faith. Always. 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 Only. 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 By faith. You may remember Peter's encouragement to the church in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him, Peter tells the church. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. That's right. We believe by faith, even though we have not seen Jesus. We know Jesus. We trust Jesus. We believe in him and the things written about him. Look at how John wraps up the chapter in verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the purpose of the book is that, one, that you would believe in Jesus and have life. John has written about Jesus Christ first so that you would see who he is and believe in him. He is the Son of God. You must acknowledge him. Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed and sent one to represent God, and you must receive him. Jesus is the Savior. He was born to take away the sins of his people, and you must cry out to him for salvation. Jesus is the Lord. You must bow to him. He rules and reigns forever. Believe these things. Believe in Jesus. And John has written about Jesus that in believing these things about him, you would submit your life to Christ. And then you would have eternal life. Eternal life. It doesn't just mean life forever. 
because I'll let you on, on a little Bible secret. Everybody's going to have life forever. You have been created as an eternal being. You will last forever. But you will last forever in one of two places. Eternal life, as the Bible describes it, is a qualitative difference. You will live in glory with God who gave you life. Or you will live in fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth in a hell provided for you who have rebelled against God. Eternal life by the resurrection. Eternal death by your rejection. Choose life. Choose life. Dear friend, let what was your destiny be be an encouragement, a warning to choose life. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's here beckoning you. Come. Don't disbelieve, but believe. The purpose of this book And this chapter in particular is also that you would have hope in this world. Dear brothers and sisters, you have not been left without hope just because Jesus has gone back to the Father, where, by the way, he's interceding for us right now. It's where we want him. He is serving as our priest, interceding for us even now. The resurrection brought hope to Mary Magdalene, didn't it? From sorrow and despair, Jesus transformed her to be on mission for him. Happy again was Mary when she saw Christ and served him by going to tell the disciples, I've seen the risen Lord. You want to feel alive? Go tell people you've seen the risen Lord. The resurrection brought hope to the disciples from fear and trembling to overflowing gladness. Overflowing gladness and increased understanding. After the resurrection, they did come to understand more clearly, more deeply, the things that Jesus had taught them before. And the resurrection brought hope to Thomas from a man who declared that he would never believe to a man who declared, my Lord and my God. Wow. These things should revive our hope. And what about you here this morning, dear Christians in need of hope? And you need it. It's a dark, confusing, despairing world that we live in. And it's characterized by death. We don't like to think that way. But it's true. It's characterized by death. Dear church, how might we revive our resurrection hope? Let me list five ways. Let me list five brief ways that this very morning in studying the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, His resurrection gives us hope to live here now. First, the resurrection gives us the sure and certain hope that Jesus has successfully atoned for our sins and that we stand justified before God. Who can comprehend that Jesus would lay down His life for sinners like us? Who can comprehend that he'd be able to take up his life again? Because Jesus paid the debt of sin we owed to God. God has forgiven us our debt. We stand justified before God. Justified by the blood of Christ. 
we have his right standing before God. Romans 4, 5 says, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. There's the promise. We're justified. Number two, the resurrection gives us sure and certain hope that Jesus defeated death and the fear of death. Romans 6, 9 says, We know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. On the cross, Jesus defeated our enemies of sin, death, and the devil. Therefore, we no longer fear them. We no longer fear hell. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul writes to the Corinthians. Number three, the resurrection gives us the sure and certain hope that we are united with Christ. As believers, we have the righteousness of God that comes not from the law, but from Christ himself by faith. Christ's righteousness has been credited to our account so that when God looks at us, he sees us in the righteousness of his Son. We're new creations in Christ in this way. Romans 6, 8 says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. Reason number four, the resurrection gives us a real and living hope. A real and living hope. The Bible says that all believers are beloved of God, blessed, forgiven, redeemed, sealed by the Holy Spirit. We have everything we need right now for life and godliness in this world. Peter writes, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's resurrection hope. It's a true and living and practical daily hope. Reason number five. The resurrection gives us the sure and certain hope that we too will be raised. We too will be raised. You know, it's hard with even our sanctified imaginations to get our minds around around what that would look like. What that would be like. We don't have to wonder for much longer. We'll experience it. Paul writes, for as in Adam all will die, so in Christ all will be made alive. In this life we struggle. In this life we suffer. As believers, in this life we labor for Christ, which brings increased opposition and adversity. But it also bears fruit. The gospel fruit of salvation. Christ himself was the first fruit of his own resurrection. And we are but a part of a greater harvest to follow. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. My friends, do you believe this? Do you believe in the resurrection? Because if you do, if you would, you would have hope for tomorrow and for today.
Revive us in hope, O God. Remind us that because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, that we have an abundant life now, an abundant life forever in him. He is our blessed hope. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.